Welcome to the Eater Upsell, a food podcast that's not always about food. Dun, dun, dun. I'm one of your hosts, Greg Morabito. I'm the editor of Eater New York. And I'm your other host, Helen Rosner, the executive editor of Eater. And on today's podcast, we are talking to... Mark Summers. Mark Summers? Literally, like, like I'm not messing with you. We are talking with Mark Summers. From Double Dare? From Double Dare. And what would you do? And, and the reason he's here the host and executive producer of countless food TV shows. Wait, you mean the architect of modern food television game shows, Mark Summers? He's right here in the Eater Upsell studio, and we're going to talk to him in just a minute. So we arrived in the Eater Upsell studio today uh, with a surprise from our AP, Dan, and that are some... uh, that are some unusual <laughs> snacks here. What do we have here? Well, I, I feel I feel ungenerous talking about this because I hate them. Oh, I hate them. Really? I, 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 love, I love our AP Dan, but you know what I hate is green tea Kit Kats. No way. They're so disgusting. No way, dude. I thought you loved them because I thought you brought some back from somewhere, right? Other people like them and they're wrong, but I choose to indulge that. But you did bring some back to the office, right? I did. I love Japanese Kit Kats in general. And, and the phenomenon of Kit Kats in Japan, like it's one of my favorite things in the world of like packaged candy, but somehow green tea Kit Kats, which are a specifically Japanese flavor, are the most common flavor of Japanese Kit Kat that you can buy in the U.S. And they taste like you're eating bong water in candy form. They're disgusting. They're absolutely repulsive. They taste like dirt and bad weed. I've actually never had one of these before. Guess what? You brought brought some other kind recently, right? They were red? I brought my favorite They were like rose. They taste like potpourri to me. (laughs) So I brought in strawberry, which are okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Green tea for the haters and well, I guess I'm their hater. Green tea for the wrong people. And mm-hmm. then the the best of all Japanese Kit Kat flavors, which is dark chocolate. That sounds that sounds tasty. But yeah. um, I have this bag of green tea Kit Kats that Dan brought in for us. All right. And I'm going to make you eat it because I like to make you suffer. So let me just preface this by saying that, that I actually do not have a sweet tooth. I do not like sweets. So you might like this because it's gross. Oh, but also I don't like gross things, but uh, okay. well, some things. Let's I mean, try it out. I just found out I like the Eagles a lot and I never knew the band and I never thought I would, you know, literally everything I know about you as a human being would have predicted that you like the Eagles. Oh yeah. You okay. like Steely Dan. You That's like true. the Stone Roses. You are now literally a dad. Uh, yeah. Like Greg, you're, you're the target audience for the Eagles. There we go. Okay. So, but Quiet- am I the target audience for the green tea Kit Kat? I don't quietly sing Desperado into the microphone while I open this package. Oh, I don't. I have some, I have some dignity left. I don't know if I will, you know, in 30 seconds from okay. now. Okay. Greg so. has reached into the Kit Kat package. He has taken out a single serving two bar Kit Kat. Okay. So it's, um, it's a little sort of pea green brick with a crease in the middle of it. Like, like a Kit Kat bar. It's like a Kit Kat bar. It really is. I mean, it looks like spring peas from the green market to it me. It does. It's sort of beautiful. Yeah. All right. So, so let's let's break as I've it. been holding this in my hand as we've been talking, it's already kind of starting to melt. But here we go. All right. Whoa, 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 Greg! You just bit into the Kit Kat. Was I not supposed to? You didn't snap the Kit Kat. Oh, sorry, you, uh, Kit, Kit Kat police over here. Have you? Wait, no, seriously, have you never had a Kit Kat before? Yeah, I've, I don't do that. I just bite into it. But this is not like a. You're like Satan. You, do you want me to share this with you? No, but the whole. 
point of the KitKat is that it's like these vertical wafers and you snap them along the crease and you eat them one. You're a monster. I don't follow the rules, okay? <laughs> I don't need I don't need your This is not James Dean Rebellion. I don't rebellion. need your rules here. Holy shit. <laughs> Okay, the Kit Kat <laughs> revolution is beginning now. You know, I actually got to say, I kind of like this. It just tastes like white chocolate to me. It doesn't taste like terrible pot. Oh, no. Now I taste that. <laughs> that, is, that is. It is exactly like bong water. Yep. It's like bong water and candy it's bar like corn a, that you just ate it's incorrectly. Like a, <laughs> it's like a bong and a bar of white chocolate it had like a crazy night and then they produced this little mini candy bar that you just violated by biting right into Ugh. i was gonna i was gonna apologize for making you eat this terrible thing but like you ate it so cruelly you finished you're eating more he's eating more i'm going i'm going for it i'm just gonna do it i'll never finish one of these again so <laughs> i'm really so glad actually, I could. <laughs> that was um i mean i wouldn't say that it's good but it's is very different than i thought i thought it would be more perfumey or something no i mean i think the phenomenon of japanese kit kats so I've never been to Japan. I would very much like to go. Um, if anybody listening wants to take me there on a vacation, I, w- mm-hmm. I would. I have no ethics policy when it comes to listeners ah, taking me sticks, to Japan. Sticks in your mouth that flavor. Yeah, and aftertaste. Uh, oof. So Japan has this extraordinary cornucopia of flavors for Kit Kats. Like I, we've talked about the strawberry and the dark chocolate, and obviously the green tea. They also have like wasabi flavored Kit Kats. They have chocolate with chili. They had this whole series of Kit Kats that were pegged to individual cities and regions in Japan. So you could get like. Um, one of them was um, butter rum Kit Kats or like rum raisin was Tokyo flavored. And like there were, you know, like creme brulee Kit Kats that actually come with instructions for literally bruleeing the candy. So like you put it <laughs> under a broiler or under a little butane and, and torch. One of them and like, is you have to break off the pieces. It's, it's literally the Kit Kat song gives you this instruction. Okay. Like break me off a piece of that cake. Like, right. But yeah, you don't have to break it at the crease though. I mean... I guess if you hate the world. I mean, it's like a Neapolitan pizza. Sometimes it's not cut. How do you eat it? Do you eat it in slices or do you just, just go straight through error. the middle? Are you, like, what? The, like, who are you? Uh, hey, you know, you learn. <laughs> oh, my God. I do not regret feeding you a terrible Kit Kat anymore. Man, I got to say that is a concentrated snack. I mean, what is that? That That is like, you know, a tiny it really is the size of your thumb, but it's so present in my mouth and my mind right now, that flavor. Well, you deserve it. And now, in the Eater Upsell Studios, Mr. Mark Summers. I was in um, uh, Florence, uh, Italy last year, and there's a the Central Market is right downtown. Well, I've been to that place several times. Now they built a second story, uh, and they put fine dining restaurants up there and I had I'm a pizza fanatic the best pizza maybe I've ever had in my entire life was up in that marketplace um, so it's it's becoming a global situation I love it I didn't know you were a pizza fanatic oh my god it's if if somebody said last meal I'd say first course pizza second course pizza third course pizza I just love it are you pizza omnivorous or do you have a specific sort of sect well you judge it by the margarita if the margarita sucks everything else is going to suck but I'm also a thin crust read a newspaper through it as a opposed to that ridiculous stuff they do in Chicago, which is this gigantic loaf of bread with some tomato sauce on it. It Ooh, just man. makes no shots, sense. Shots fired. Oh, yeah. I'm not a Chicago guy, and I, I'm not embarrassed to say it. Uh, I, I just wonder if there's any good thin crust pizza in, in Chicago. I don't know. There is. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm from Chicago, and I feel like morally obligated to say that there is good thin crust pizza in Chicago, though I have no idea where it can be found, I'm sure. 
somebody listening to this will be very happy to tell us where I'm sure. I should know. And, and tell them how much they hate me because I said it. But I, it's, it's where you're from, you know. But that deep dish thing, it just doesn't make any sense. I think that um, the people who sort of derisively identify it as a casserole are actually like factually correct. That mm-hmm. if you think about it as a casserole, it makes way more sense as a food stuff. But I don't think that calling it a casserole is a fair insult to it as a form of As pizza. a Jewish person, we don't eat casseroles. So, um. Oh, but as a Jewish person from the Midwest, we very much do. <laughs> no, I'm a Jewish person from the Midwest. I'm from Indiana. I'm from Chicago. Well, okay. But, and you had casseroles we in had your casseroles. house? You must have been so reformed. It's unbelievable. <laughs> did you have mayonnaise in your we house, had, too? We had kosher casseroles. <laughs> no, you didn't. We totally did. Oh, man. And kosher God. casseroles are the kosher big casseroles. Like, 2016 trend that hasn't happened yet. Right. It's going to be my hot cookbook. It's going to oh, be kosher man. casseroles. Well, this is uh, probably as good a time as any to introduce our guest today. You if, you know him. You know it's Mark Summers. You probably recognize that voice. You've probably seen him on TV at some point over the last hundreds of 40 thousands years. Of times. Been doing a long time. Started uh, on Romper Room in Indianapolis in 1956, okay? Um, and, and nationally, the first thing I did was Truth or Consequences with uh, a guy by the name of Bob Hilton who took over for Barker. That was in, like, 74 um, Double Dare ran from 86 to 94, and I've been on the Food Network for 17 years, so uh, it's pretty crazy. Food Network for 17 years, and so you've basically been there since the, the, the ground up, huh? I think Bobby's the only one who's been there longer than me now. Wow. So, you know, we were just talking about this a little bit before. Did I see on Facebook that one of your food segments was trending last week? Did you see this from the Food Network? I didn't see that. What was that? Uh, maybe somebody just shared it on my feed, but... Um, it was some factory clip, which is not from narrowed Unwrapped. down. It was from Unwrapped, yeah. yes. And what was it? Oh, gosh, I can't even remember. But I remember looking at it. It was some kind of candy or something. Yeah, well, I, I, well, yeah, we've never done know, that before. I know, I know exactly so what you're talking <laughs> No, but I was just thinking, I was, you know, I, you know, if you follow a million people on Facebook like I do, you get bombarded by so much stuff every day. But I was looking at the cinema of it and the way that it was filmed, and it is remarkably close to a very popular style of internet video right now, like the thing that's taken off. You presaged it. I, I probably presaged everything because I'm just, I'm old, but um, it, it's just fascinating that in the last week, I didn't hear about that, but uh, I did a Tonight Show in 1994 where Burt Reynolds and I got into a fight, and that was trending the week before that, so I don't know if somebody's uh, just nostalgic for Mark Summers stuff or something, but uh, recently I've been all over the web. It's weird, and as you know, you can't control that. What just, was your fight with Burt Reynolds about? Um, I came on the show. Uh, he was very angry at Jay because Jay had been sort of uh, cutting in his monologue to him. And um, I come out, and uh, Bert was going through a nasty divorce with uh, Lonnie Anderson at the time. And I was talking about being a neatness fanatic and having obsessive compulsive disorder. And he said, who told you you're a neatness fanatic? And I said, my wife. And by the way, I'm still married. We actually have that clip right here. And who told course. you were a neatness freak? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just say that because your back is to me, and I, I, I was just talking to a back. No, no, I, I can talk to you too, Bert. Thank you. Watch um, out, he's got scissors. He's got, he's got scissors. No, I was just wondering who told you that, because... My, my wife tells me that often. You, she says, good morning. I, I'm you're still neatness. married, as a matter of fact. Yes, well, you... Uh, and he took water and dropped it in my crotch. And uh, the next thing I knew, there were two pies, and we got into a pie fight. Pull it up on uh, YouTube. Your head will explode. It's. Uh, do they just it, keep the pies? No, off that's stage, a whole long or? story. Uh, they wanted to do a pie thing. This is when Jay was just starting the show, and then he decided no. But when he saw that Bert and I were going at it, he he you can see him say on on uh, camera to the stage manager, "Go get the pies." And uh, you know, people think it was rehearsed. It wasn't. It was all spontaneous. You know, who knew that that was going to happen? And uh, but pies became a. a 
a huge part of your personal brand. In they the, did because of a show called uh, What Would You Do? Which I was obsessed with. Uh, well, as, you know, there's certain age of people person. that love yeah. that better than Double Dare. And a guy by the name of uh, Woody Frazier was a big pie fanatic. And uh, so we had the pie slide, the pie coaster, and uh, you name it, we had pies. And somehow I got attached to that. I was after Soupy Sales, so it was Mark Summers and Pies, you know? There was something to that sort of like early slash mid 90s programming for children that, and you know, tweens, I guess, though we didn't have that word back then. It was more then. about families. Yeah, but there, there were the, the like, tropes of vaudeville mm-hmm. were kind of coming back it's then, true. right? Like, Animaniacs had yes. all of these references, and you had pies on what would you do, and, like, there were a lot of, like, big hooks pulling people off stages, and I we think were for, doing like, shtick, you yeah, know? for, like, nine-year-olds, they had no idea what they <laughs> were seeing, shtick. but their grandparents were so into they these had, references. It, it's very true, because they didn't know what a ventriloquist was, or a juggler, and they were seeing it for the first time. Meanwhile, it had been around for a hundred years. And I think, if you walked down the street today and went to, uh, you know, a 17-year-old kid, what's a ventriloquist do? They wouldn't know. They have that, Those things don't you know, there's no Ed Sullivan show, and although there's America's Got Talent, people are basically singing or doing some crazy thing where they're climbing the wall or pretending to fly as opposed to doing real show business. I think the first winner of America's Got Talent was a ventriloquist. Why do I know this fact? I've literally never seen the show. He went to, to Vegas, and yeah. he's still there. So it's ventriloquism will never die. It's a very impressive talent. I mean, if you see it, it's... It's the, kind of the ultimate magic trick, I think. Yeah. yeah. Which is how I started as a professional magician. Really? Yeah, that's how I started my career. So what kind of, were you sleight of hand? Were oh, you well, like... when you first start off, you, you know, do the typical, uh, you know, pull handkerchiefs out of a box kind of situation. And uh, then I started working the Magic Castle in Los Angeles and started doing stand-up with, uh, it was comedy magic. And then the next thing I know, I became a regular at the comedy store in 76. I started with Dave Letterman and Robin Williams and Jay and Gary Shandling. And uh, then I was doing warm-ups on television shows. And I've had such a weird career that, you know, I've sort of, I started off as a game show writer and then I became a warm-up guy and I was a magician and uh, it's just been crazy when you look back and say, wow, I did all those weird things. So what was your kind of attitude? Was it just like, I got to diversify, I got to be, you know, I'm into many different things. So I got to like, be funny. No, it was survival of the fittest, quite honestly. I wanted to take over Johnny's place. When I moved out to LA in 73, I said, oh, Johnny's going to be retiring soon. Well, little did I know that a thousand other guys moved out to LA and decided the same thing. So then it was a matter of, well, how do you make a living doing this? And uh, the Magic Castle paid me. Back in the day, in 1974, I would do 28 shows a week. Whoa. Uh, four shows a night, seven nights a week for $145. Uh, we weren't being paid at the comedy store at the time. I used to host a wet t-shirt contest in Long Beach at a place called Big Jaws for 50 bucks. Uh, but you know, back in the day, my rent was $125 a month in, uh, at 13107 Moore Park in Sherman Oaks. Um, and you could actually live on a young performer's salary. Uh, now that same apartment's about $2,000, so I'm not sure how you do it. With a $50 wet t-shirt contest, you need a lot of those. Oh my God. I, and I was I was newly married and and just uh, embarrassed to do it, but I needed to pay the rent. My wife was a dental assistant making four hundred bucks uh, a week, and uh, you know we were trying to you know save money and and so you did what you had to do. But every Sunday I'd say see you in a couple hours, and I'd drive to Long Beach and. And do the wet T-shirt contest. So, how did you go from wet T-shirts to hosting children's game shows? <laughs> it was a, like a logical progression. Well, you know, I was I was writing game shows for a number of years. Did a show called Fun Factory and Celebrity Sweepstakes, and on and on. Um, doing stand-up, doing warm-ups, and I always wanted to be in front of the camera. But uh, back then, the people hosting game shows were Bob Barker and Gene Rayburn and uh, Art James. They were older guys, and I'd go to auditions, and they'd say, "Come back when you have gray hair and wrinkles," because that's what they were looking at. So, um, I had actually gone 
man, here's this little tidbit that I don't talk about much. Um, I had a friend who I went to college with, Lawrence Milner, who um, was from Cape Town, South Africa, and had a smoked salmon business. And he was the largest distributor of smoked salmon to the entire continent of Australia, as well as to Harrods of London. And he would come over to the States and bring his smoked salmon, and it was phenomenal. So I was unemployed one summer, and I said, send me some salmon. Let me go see if I can sell it. So I go to a deli in a place called Larchmont, and I open up this three-ounce pack of smoked salmon from Cape Town, and they buy it on the spot. So I called Lawrence, woke him up at like 3 in the morning, and I said, you won't believe it, but the first place I took it, I sold it. Well, the next thing I know, we're doing 80,000 pounds a month of smoked salmon to then uh, the Price Club before it became Costco. Then we got into Trader Joe's, so I became the king of smoked salmon. And I get a phone call one day from a friend of mine, uh, Dave Garrison, uh, who was a ventriloquist, who had decided he was going to move behind the camera. This was uh, in uh, June of 86. And he said, I got a call from some network I've never heard of called Nickelodeon. They're uh, casting for a game show. Why don't you go instead of me? And I did. They told me they had looked at a thousand different hosts and uh, New York didn't like anybody. And then um, I was the first to audition here. I had three callbacks. And I ended up getting the job, and it was it came down to me and another guy, and I ended up getting the, the job, and I said, what made me stand out of the 2,000 people? And they said, well, when it came down to you and the last guy, you were pretty much equal. But at the end of his audition, he looked at the camera and said, you guys want me to do something else? And I looked at the camera and said, we'll be back with more Double Dare after this. I threw the commercial. They thought that was more professional. That's how I ended up getting the job that changed my life. And you could have just been the smoked salmon baron of North America. You know, honest to God, I could have been doing hundreds of thousands of pounds of smoked salmon. I know my smoked salmon, but, uh, you know, uh, what can I tell you? So you hung up the smoked salmon hat, I mean, like immediately? Or was it like a side hustle? No, no, no. I I literally walked away from uh, from doing uh, King Solomon smoked salmon. Uh, with Lawrence Milner and uh, and me. And do, you, do you still like? I mean, you you've still got the touch. Do you still like order smoked salmon judgmentally oh, wherever you go? First of all, by color. Uh, and uh, yeah, I can go in and tell you what's got preservatives in it and what you know don't get the farm uh, raised. And uh, I can tell you, you know, you, you really want Scottish uh, if you can get it, but you pay for it. Um, so yeah, I, I'm still quite uh, particular about my pizza and my smoked salmon. Do you have a favorite restaurant for smoked salmon? Uh, right here in New York, shop? and uh, and uh, why can't um, Russ and Daughters? I, I think it's the finest smoked salmon I've ever had. That I, I don't think there are a lot of New Yorkers who will disagree with that, except for the the very vocal Barney Greengrass faction who might yeah, come which after is good. You. But I always go up there, and you know, I get uh, whitefish and eggs or something like that. The thing I was disappointed about at Russ and Daughter was uh, their latkes weren't very good, in my opinion. But, I feel uh, like they're great at seafood and not so good at the carbohydrate area yeah. of things. I gave it a shot, but I'd go back for that uh, salmon and send people there. I had a friend uh, who grew up with me in Indianapolis who's a big shot doctor in Dallas, and he said, where should I go for breakfast? And I said, Russ and Daughter, it's the only place. There you go. Did you ever have moments during Double Dare where you're like, man, I should have stuck with the fish? Oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> Never crossed my mind once. No, 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 no. So Double Dare really took off. It was on the air for how, how many years? Like seven or we eight years? We were on the air October of 86. In fact, October 6th this year is the 30th anniversary. And then uh, I think we went off around 94. So why did it go off? Was it the ratings? Well, you know, to... in cable, you do 100 episodes, you're done. We did 525 episodes oh of Double God. Dare. So, you know, do you really need to shoot anymore? So it ran in reruns from 94 until 2000 where they made an attempt at Double Dare 2000, which crashed and burned. And uh, the rest is history. I mean, it kicked off such a golden era of like game shows for kids oh yeah right like the whole 
I think it was everybody's dream if you were around our age to to somehow be magically selected to appear on one of these shows. Yeah, and I did that. I did What Would You Do? I did a show called Pick Your Brain that I produced out of my company. And uh, so I was sort of the, uh, the king of kids shows back in the day. And uh, I think uh, some networks should think about doing it again because it's lacking from uh, this particular generation. They don't see it. So as you kept going in this in this world, you know, what what in your opinion were like the most important things if you're making one of these kids shows? To not talk down to him, to not go in a squeaky voice, hi, Bobby, do you have a girlfriend? Um, <laughs> I never did that. I always thought I was hosting Jeopardy, and I always thought as the kids, as adults, I made fun of them. They seemed to be fine. And they went to focus groups, and they thought I was a big brother or some crazy uncle. Because uh, back when we started, believe it or not, I was 34 when we first launched, but the kids thought I was like 23 because I had a much younger look than I had teenagers and got gray hair and uh, and got shriveled up. But uh, <laughs> nonetheless, um, you know, I just treated them like kids and like grownups, and I never was condescending to them, and I think that that helped. So you have kids of your own. I have Did- a 36-year-old son who was the exec producer of a show called Cutthroat Kitchen. We've and heard I have of that. Uh, yeah. a 32-year-old daughter who's getting married in October and is uh, the uh, uh, yoga instructor extraordinaire uh, and is a singer as well and and an actress. She's she's done a couple of off-Broadway shows. She's quite talented, a real renaissance lady. Did working with kids in your day job bleed into how you parented? Oh, I don't think so. I was always a whacked out uh, adult and a parent. I think uh, my kids thought I was nuts. I think they still think I'm crazy. I don't think I've ever been disciplined as a parent. Uh, (laughs) Think about it. I was hosting Easter at the White House and my kids were running around in the blue room. Um, I was throwing out pitches at Fenway Park. Um, I flew with the Blue Angels. I mean, I've done crazy stuff and my kids were always right there with me. I just did, uh, it was the 100th running of the Indy 500 and me and my son were right there. I just did a two-seater ride doing 180 miles an hour on the 500. So, you know, I'm 65 in November, but mentally I'm still about, you know, 24. So it it still works. Sounds like you were a cool dad. I'd like to think I was. You know, I was doing the Today Show once and Brian Gumble said to me, uh, that's how long ago this was, uh, do your kids think you're cool or special because of what you do? And I said, I think, I hope they think I'm special, you know, long before I ever did television. I just think you have to approach it in a certain way. Um, you know, do you, that's a fine line is, you know, you don't want to be your kid's friend and yet, uh, you know, you got to discipline them and all those things. But, you know, my wife deserves all the credit. I've been married 42 years and she raised the kids and I was gone a lot. So uh, she did a great job. So how'd you hook up with the Food Network in the early days there? Once well, you get a mistake, everything I've done has been a mistake. Um, I, I regret was, it all. Uh, it's so bizarre. <laughs> I was uh, doing a talk show on Lifetime called Biggers and Summers and um, we got canceled. And uh, Judy Gerard, who was the boss, uh, was the one who dropped me. And I didn't work for about a year and a half. And um, it's when I came out and talked about obsessive compulsive disorder. And I was the national spokesperson for the OC Foundation. And I was working for Salve Pharmaceuticals, going around trying to convince people to get on uh, Luvox. And uh, I'd done it for two and a half years. They were paying me very nicely, but I wanted to get back on TV. But um, I had this reputation all of a sudden of being this guy with obsessive compulsive disorder. You know, somehow Howie Mandel got away for it, got away with it for years. But I was sort of put in a corner. And I called up Judy. I, I was reading the trades. I was uh, I gave a speech in D.C. and was taking a train up to New York. And my wife sent me Variety, and it said Judy Gerard becomes head of programming for Food Network. So I called her up and I said, Judy, I'll pay you to get back on television. <laughs> and she said, I, I've just been here like ten minutes. Give me a while. So she called me and said, uh, We have no money. And, okay, great. Uh, I don't care. And she said, we're going to do a show on surprise parties called It's a Surprise. Do you want to host it? I said, absolutely. And so we shot 65 of those. And I, I uh, always say that the, the, uh, on It's a 
surprise. The surprise was nobody was watching. Um, <laughs> so they canceled it. 65 is a lot of oh episodes for a show that nobody was watching. Well, back in the day, they used to pick up a lot of those things, you know. So we were shooting those crazy things. And uh, I was shooting a uh, the national team pastry championship up in Colorado in some mountain town. And they gave me an hour special of Unwrapped that a guy by the name of Mark Silverstein had hosted. And they said, what do you think of this? And this was, you know, a long time ago. And I said, what A&E has with biography, I think this show could be for the Food Network. So they put us on at 1030 on Monday nights. We crashed and burned. They said, we're going to move you to Mondays at nine if it works great. Otherwise, you're fired. And at nine o'clock, we just caught on. Next thing I know, we're doing an hour from nine to 10. And at one point, we were doing a show a game show called Trivia Unwrapped. So it was all Mark Summers all the time from 9 to 10.30. I was the uh, Guy Fieri before Guy was Guy. And I was all over. We were the number one show for the longest time. And so, uh, you know, once again, it's nothing I planned. And if somebody would have told me, for the next 17 years, you'll be doing food television, I would have said, you know, what drug are you on? Because I just, just no way. I had nothing to do with food. Food television seems like a very fickle thing that, you know, a lot of shows don't work out. And, you know, why do you think this this really took hold, and why do you think it was so endearing? Uh, my uh, uh, mentor, a guy by the name of Dick Block, he's about 90 years old, always said all TV shows are the same until uh, the person says hello. And if you like the way they say hello, you'll stick around, and if you don't, you won't. So for whatever reason, I became a Dick Clark kind of guy. The people who grew up watching me on Nick and on Pick Your Brain then followed me over to Food Network, and they've been a loyal audience for all these years. And uh, I guess I was safe television. I was known for doing family-oriented stuff. I mean, I can't tell you how many game shows that had dating that they want me to audition for that I would never even audition. I, I want nothing to do with those shows. It's like uh, being the exec producer of Dinner and Restaurant Impossible. Um, it's all real, although I go in debates with ridiculous websites. Nobody believes us. But what you see is what you get. We don't fake anything. And all I can do is tell the truth. And that's what we've done. And that's why I think it's been so successful. We did about 89 episodes of Dinner Impossible. And we just completed season 13, 160 episodes of, uh, of Restaurant Impossible. So we must be doing something right. I mean, Robert Irvine is amazing. He's great talent, so that obviously makes it easier. But, uh, you know, as the guy who has to oversee it, um, I just kind of feel I, I have somewhat of the pulse of what people want to watch. Was the the sort of decision to become a family-friendly type person, was it a decision? I mean, did you it make was. the choice to avoid blue work? And yeah, I, I will tell you, um, there was a, a Fox... I can't even tell the story. That's how disgusting it is. I'm trying to figure out how I can do it. Um, there was a game show that Adam Carolla hosted on Fox, a, kids, or a, a dating show. And um, when I went in for the audition, it, it, it was so disgusting what they wanted me to do that I literally got up in the middle and, and walked out and was going down the, the hallway. And they're yelling, where are you going? What, why are you leaving? You know? And I yelled back, call Will Schreiner, I remember. And then I get in my car and my agent calls me and he goes, this is back in the day when no cell phones, you could, they were like attached to your car and they looked like bricks. Car and my, phones. Yes, right. the yeah. car phone. And, <laughs> and my phone rang in about two seconds and my agent said, what the hell just happened? They just called. They think you're crazy. And I said, you know, they want me to do this like sexually oriented, you know, I said, you don't go from throwing green liquids at 11 year olds to, you know, talking about blowjobs. So uh, I walked away and I just, I won't even go to those auditions. You know, now they don't ask me anymore, but back then, um, no, I, 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 conscious decision. Absolutely. There was definitely that like era of like, how gross can we make yeah. these dating shows? Ridiculous. I mean, now the internet has just sort of taken over as People far as being the most repulsive place shows. possible. Well, yeah. I gonna say, yeah. You can see anything you want on the web, so you don't right. even need to do it on a game show. Do you feel like the, the, 
the rise of the internet as a medium. I mean, it's definitely changed the way that, oh, yeah. that Food Network has, you know, done its programming and everything like that. How do how do your shows fit into that ecosystem? Well, now, you know, when you go in to pitch a show to the network, the first thing they ask you is, you know, what's your website? And they want to make sure that you have a website. And, you know, uh, how much do you tweet? How much do you use Facebook? How many? That's like, really? You know, like they want us to live tweet during all these shows. Excuse me, I have a life, um, you know, <laughs> and it's East Coast, West Coast they want us to do. And, and it's a, you know, it's a necessary evil that you have to use the Internet, you know, with, uh, you know, Snapchat and Instagram. And you can spend your whole life doing that stuff. And um, I do it to a certain extent. But, you know, there's also these idiot troll people who like to go in there and screw with you. And uh, I can't wait till your show gets canceled. And it's like, you know, you're living in your basement. You're a mouth breather. You, you know, <laughs> you probably work at a drugstore for $3 an hour. So, you know, shut the F up. You know, it's, it drives me nuts that these people do this. And they have, uh, well, look at Donald Trump. You know, do I need to say more? No, you can get pretty far being an asshole on the Internet. Yeah, apparently you can. <laughs> but you, you tweet pretty prolifically. I do. And. And, uh, you know, I take no prisoners. Uh, don't screw with me. If if you have a, a justified comment that makes sense, fine. But don't just trash me to trash me. You know, I mean, I, I will stand up for my team, for Robert, for Food Network, and anybody else that I need to because you're not going to get away with that. But Mark Goodson, back in the day when I was doing game shows, used to refer to those people as mouth breathers, and, and he was absolutely right. It's still such a great term. Oh, I mean, yeah. We use the word troll a lot, but mouth, mouth breather is more it's evocative. It's so physiological. Yeah. Well, it is. And you have a vision in your mind of what that person is, you know, unsuccessful, jealous people. Yeah. You know, anybody who's successful in this industry uh, has worked their rear end off. Very rarely is it all luck. You know, when you start the career, it's always 80% luck and 20% talent. But after you make it, it becomes 80% talent, 20% luck. So, you know, uh, get out of your uh, basement and and try to do something. Good luck. So as someone who has been, you know, at the Food Network almost since day one, Mm -hmm. how do you think the Food Network has changed, like, people's habits in terms of, like, eating out or dining? Or is there any sort of, you know? Well, who would have thought that chefs would become rock stars? I mean, that's the other thing. I, I you know, uh, I'm friends with Guy Fieri, and, and walking down the street with him is impossible. Walking down the street with any of these guys. I mean, Michael Simon, Bobby Flay, Robert Irvine, uh, Giada De Laurentiis, uh, Rachel Ray, good luck. I mean, I just say I'll meet you at the restaurant because uh, it's, it's ridiculous. So there's number one. Uh, so those people who had this great, uh, you know, job as chefs now add TV to it. And if you, if you ask Bobby Flay right now, what would you rather be doing, cooking or being on TV? He'll always say, I'd rather be in the kitchen because these guys are passionate and that's why they're good. But who would have thought that the chew would be on and so successful? It's always, there's, uh, I think, 19 shows on daytime television. It's always five, six, or seven, but uh, the chew is the second highest billing show on daytime television. So the host there drive that revenue because people want to watch that stuff. So you've got that. Um, and I just think, you know, where initially people used it a la Emerald Live to learn how to cook, uh, it's gotten to be about competition now. Certainly Chopped is a huge show, and not because my son does it, but Cutthroat has become like a game show with food. Mm-hmm. Uh, very creative. We just did a Double Dare episode. That's coming up. Wait till you see that episode. Yeah, the oh challenges are really elaborate. Uh, and wait, cool. a, yeah. a Double Dare we Chopped? We did Double, no, double, double Dare, dare cutthroat, cutthroat Kitchen. kitchen. That's going to explode uh, the internet. You won't believe what we did. That show was. And of course, all the stuff is going on where I'm upstairs in the dressing room. I had no idea what was happening. And then I just saw the rough cut the other day. Oh my God. I mean, it, it's a comedy show. It's it's brilliant what oh they did. Oh my God, I'm so excited. So that's cool. Um, and so I think people just want to be entertained. 
And uh, although I still think there's room for a simmer and stir kind of show like they used to refer, um, I just think they expect more than uh, ever before. And the attention span of people is, I think, shorter than ever. So are they going to sit there? You know, on a restaurant impossible, it's 42 minutes of television. You have to make it compelling. And uh, it's not necessarily easy. I think, you know, it's it's sort of shifted, I guess, from educational television, right? Like instructional, like mm -hmm. here's how to make dinner. To yeah, just, the Julia Child kind of thing. Right, to like true entertainment. I yep. mean, it's got to have an arc. It's got to have tension. It's got to like get, you know, it's 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 really. We All had, words that they use when we're at Food Network. You and know? editing, editing. <laughs> we were talking with Ted Allen about how long it takes to edit an episode of Chopped. And we were <sighs> like, what? It takes us a month to do one episode of Restaurant Impossible, four weeks. Beyond. I yeah. mean, it's an extraordinary Well, think figure. about it. We have uh, four cameras rolling for two days. Yeah. And so we have uh, 70 hours of video that have to be cut down to 42 minutes. So do you watch um, other shows that, like like with an eye for their editing decisions? Oh, absolutely. You start like, oh, like they made that cut there. Oh, yeah. Or the pacing. The pacing is what's important. You know, what is left on the cutting room floor, nobody at home knows. You know, you sometimes as a producer go, oh, God, I really want that to be in the show, but there's no place for it. Well, the people at home, you know, uh, scratching themselves, drinking beer, they don't know that show had that element. So you kind of have to move forward. Um, and, and what we're always looking for is good characters. What's the conflict going to be when Robert walks in the door and says, I'm here to fix your restaurant? Are they going to like it? Are they going to hate it? Are they going to like him? Are they going to hate him? What's the situation? And now the last three seasons we've done uh, ambush. So trust me, they don't know we're coming. And so what is it going to be like when Robert walks in? Um, you know, are they going to go get, get out of here or are they going to go with open arms or is it going to be somewhere in between? And then does he have to convince him? And if you have to convince him, is that a good thing? So it's, it's very stressful television. With the ambushes, how does it work sort of legally and release-wise? Like, Oh, my God. This has been the nightmare of all nightmares. <laughs> uh, so um, now a family member or somebody who works in the restaurant contacts us. And then we do a Skype with that person to get all the detail. Then I have a gentleman who works for me, Tony Del Vecchio, who goes in with an iPad and eats and just snoops around and tries to shoot video. Where before, we knew everything about the people. We pre-interviewed them. We were in the kitchen. We knew what was dirty. We knew what did. We don't know that now. So I've been killed the last couple seasons. Like, you know, we just did a place. The refrigeration system didn't work. When they opened it up, it smelled like the most disgusting thing I'd ever seen. I mean, Robert always says you're going to kill somebody. And so, you know, things aren't up to temp and all that other kind of stuff. And so what you do uh, properly at the right time, well, normally, here's the other thing. So most of people don't own their buildings. So we have to go and find out who the landlord is and go to the landlord and A, see if they'll sign the release that we can even go in the building and then make sure that they don't spill the beans. So that's another issue. And so if they won't sign it, then we have to move on and go to another place. So if they sign it, then it's a matter of going in, surprising the person. And when they're baffled and Robert has just come in, we stop tape and we stick paper on them <laughs> and tell them to sign it. They hardly read it and they, nine times out of 10, do sign it. That sounds like a logistical nightmare. Uh, it's very stressful. So it sounds like you really want to preserve that element of surprise. Oh, yeah. Otherwise, you know, I'm not doing fake reality. I just, you know, you can always tell when somebody or, you know, it's not real and I don't want to do that. And wait, and you did the surprise party show at Food Network back in the beginning. Yes. So this is like full circle. Yeah, yeah, I never thought about it that way. <laughs> Those were some of the most bizarre things. We did one guy, his parents hated him. And I remember they walked in about a half hour before the guy was going to go there and they go, how long is this going to take? Do I have to stay for this whole thing? And I'm going, oh, this is going to be a nightmare. It's funny because most people I know hate surprise yes. parties. Hate. hate. 
That would be an understatement. Yeah. And, and, and it would backfire on us. The weirdest one we ever did was there was a guy who everybody in his family never made it to 65. Okay. They always died before their 65th birthday. And this guy was up in Long Island and on a um, um, volunteer fire department. So the volunteer fire department was so excited. So I went and shot stuff like two weeks before on a fire truck and did all the pre-interviews and all that other kind of stuff. And then I was flying home. Then I was supposed to fly back the next week. And the day before I was supposed to leave, the phone rang and they said, don't come. And I said, please don't. The guy died the day before his 65th birthday. Oh, my God. Absolute true story. Yeah. So, uh, you know. That's tragic. Talk about weird, uh, weird stuff. That's horrible. Yeah. Horrible story, but a true story. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, I guess these are the perils of reality television. <laughs> That's it? I mean, like, oh, my God. I can tell you stories make your eyelashes curl. Let me tell you. So right before we jumped in the studio with <laughs> yes. you, Mark, um, one of our colleagues, Dan Rubenstein, who also hosts a podcast and does many great things for our sister publication, SB Nation, mm-hmm. he came up to you and uh, because he was on uh, Pick Your Brain. Pick Your Brain. And Which was a show that I produced. Back in the day, uh, TV stations had to do a certain amount of... Uh, quote, educational programming. And so there was a company out of Chicago called Tiger Toys. um, And uh, they asked me to take a a toy they had, 2XL, a robot, and turn it into a game show. uh, Which (laughs) That sounds like an abstract dream. It was. Here's a toy. Turn it into a game show. And I did. And uh, and Dan was on that show. And believe it or not, when he told me one thing, we used to uh, give college scholarship money. That was the prize, $5,000 towards your college. Because it's educational. Exactly. And um, we would give every kid, first, second, or third place, a sweatshirt. And my daughter at the time, who was maybe six, um, would bring out the sweatshirts. And Dan said, do you remember what university I wanted to go to? And I said, no, it's the University of Hawaii. And then I remembered, I came back from commercial break and said, why do you want to go to Hawaii? And he said, because of the women. Here's a little nine-year-old boy uh, in heat, apparently. <laughs> and now I meet him, you know, all these years later. Here in the Eater of Solstice. And he's not, he's not in Hawaii. And he's, he's not in Hawaii. He's here in New York City. But he did become a game show host. He, he did. So, and, so living you, the dream. You, you made quite an impression. <laughs> I've inspired so, him. So <laughs> I, I imagine that must happen to you all the time. Every day. Listen, I, I live day? in Philadelphia a lot. And so people come up and either talk about being in the audience, because we started in Philly, moved to New York, back to Philly, then to Orlando. And so, yes. And, and the best part is uh, this... Uh, June 8th and 9th, uh, they do Beer Week in Philly. And for the last five years, we've done Dunkle Dare, Drunk Double Dare. And it'll happen uh, the 8th and 9th of June. And uh, nothing better than alcohol and physical challenges. And, and uh, you know, people just who grew up on the show can't wait to get slimed and, uh, and, and liquored up. It's fantastic. I think it's everybody's dream. I mean, I cannot count the number of birthday parties I went to as a as a pre-adolescent that had like a double dare theme really? where there was just like physical challengers, like we're going to make slime out of cornstarch and whatever and, and throw it, it at each other. And it was never out of cornstarch. They never got it right. I, I, no, it was, it was the dream. Like it <laughs> created such a, a, like a locus of like aspirational <laughs> fantasy for these, like my, like my fellow 11 year olds and I, like all we wanted to do was go to Orlando and get slime. That's funny. It's the, so the bizarre slime, and beautiful. The slime, they should have a jar of the slime in the, you know, Smithsonian they American should. history museum. It's like this cultural <laughs> it really yeah, is. avatar. All it anyone really wants is. to do is eat it. I know. And the original recipe was applesauce and vanilla pudding and green food coloring. That's basically all it was because the insurance company back in the day made us uh, make sure that if it got in a kid's mouth, it was edible. That sounds delicious. So we made 100 pounds of, uh, you know, fresh whipped cream and slime every day. That's so beautiful. Yeah. I love that you um, embrace this 
huge part of your past and identity, and that like the nostalgia is not something that you're running away from. I think. You know what? It's part of my life. Listen, I've had a charmed career. You know, I've never worked a day in my life. Um, I've been able to do entertainment. I was never a waiter. I was never a person who worked at Macy's. Every job I've had has been in the entertainment industry, from wet T-shirt contest to being a disc jockey at a place called the Hungry Tiger in Los Angeles. Um, so. And once again, I have nothing to complain about. It's all been fun. Do you still do magic? You know, from time to time, uh, I do magic. Um, you know, I just actually a year ago went back to my stomping grounds at the Magic Castle and did a week there. Really? And it was uh, pretty frightening. But uh, <laughs> I called an old friend of mine, Stan Allen, who runs uh, the largest magazine, in, a magic magazine in the world, Magic Magazine. And uh, we used to work there all the time together. And we went back and, and did a week. It was fun. So how do you sort of rate your like sleight of hand? Was that your thing or were you more of like uh, other sort of illusions and I, tricks? No, I did slights. Uh, you know, it's kind of like riding a bicycle. Um, you know, you have to do it on a little more regular basis. But I, I grew up having to entertain my children from time to time. So I would always do a magic trick. You know, I would take a, you know, I can't do this stuff anymore. Put a napkin over there and, you know, make it disappear kind of stuff. That so, was smooth. Yes. Mark Summers just did a magic trick on our audio show. It was very visually compelling. Could you I... hear the magic? That's right. But anyway, it's, it's all, you know. Doing that, and it's unless you do it on a daily basis like I used to, it's not that easy, but uh, it kind of comes back to you. I thought that was incredibly well, magical. That, was, that totally yeah, worked I, for me. I have no idea where that wad of napkin is now. <laughs> All right, well, Mark, now it's the time in the show that we like to call the lightning rounds. Okay. Oh, my God. So we're going to ask you some questions and just tell us the first thing that uh, pops into your head here. So the first question in the lightning round is, when you're at the airport, if you've got an hour to kill and 20 or 30 bucks in your pocket, what do you do? Um, I am generally on my iPad all the time. Um, airport food generally is horrible. Um, although I will tell you that I was just in Indianapolis. There's a place called Harry and Izzy's uh, that is part of the St. Elmo uh, Steakhouse. And uh, I always know I can get a good meal there. In Chicago, it's a hot dog. Uh, but uh, I'm not hanging out in airports that much, so I'm, I'm generally on an iPad. What is your go-to dish if you have to cook something, just like nothing, nothing special, just like the stuff that's in your house? What do you cook? In L.A.? In L.A. Okay, L.A., I'm the king of barbecue. Um, I love, love, love to cook outside. And uh, my wife doesn't touch the grill. It's all about me. I do a mean uh, barbecued uh, shrimp with a uh, sauce that has tremendous paprika. I'm an old Hungarian guy. Um, chicken um, and, and steak. I mean, I just I like doing salmon as well. I'll do any fish on the grill. So that would be it. How about in Philadelphia? Philly, I eat out every night. I, I'm, a, I'm a whore. Um, I just, every night there's a great restaurant, and when my wife's not there, I'm just too lazy to cook. So I, um, I drink too much and eat too much out in Philadelphia, I do. Well, speaking of drinking, mm -hmm. if you uh, showed up at, like, the perfect bar, the bar in heaven, mm -hmm. and the bartender is waiting with the perfect version of your perfect drink, what mm -hmm. is it? It would be Grey Goose Vodka and uh, fresh-squeezed passion fruit juice. Oh. It's unbelievable. Where did you first have that? Uh, in Hawaii. Of course. And and passion fruit is maybe the most uh, luscious, lovely thing to eat ever. And then we get the juice of the passion fruit. It's even better. So gray goose and passion fruit. And then there's a place uh, in Philly that I can get that. And I'm the happiest man in the world. So you're on a road trip. You're by yourself. There's music. It's cranked up. You're singing along to it. What is it? Uh, James Taylor. 
James Taylor. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. Which era of James Taylor? Well, you know what? I've been following him for many years. I've probably seen him live 50 times. Are you a Tanglewood aficionado? Uh, you know, never been to Tanglewood. I, I just uh, haven't thought about it, but it makes no difference. Whatever city I'm in, if I find out that JT's there, uh, Harvey, our old announcer on, uh, on Double Dare, had never seen JT live, and last year I took him, got uh, front row seats uh, just on the other side in New Jersey, and so that was great. I think James may think I'm a stalker at this point. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm my music uh, library on my iPad uh, goes from Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, James Taylor, Jethro Tull, um, certain Stones uh, songs. So I'm all over the place and a lot of Broadway. But my, my husband recently pointed out to me that Sweet Baby James, which is one of James Taylor's mm -hmm. most famous songs, it is about James. Like no, it's that he's, not. Well, but like it, when he sings it, if you are not familiar with no, him. No, it's about his brother, Alex's son, oh, who really? was named after him. Oh, man. That album's really good and kind of dark. Well, you know, that was, he, G.A.T. was into a lot of uh, drugs. I'll tell you a very funny story. I called William Morris uh, last year and I said, can I get some tickets for J.T.? And they said, where is he? And I said, the, the venue. And they said, J.T.'s not there. And I said, he's there. They thought I was Justin Timberlake. They didn't think of James JT. Taylor. Yes. Oh. So uh, that scared the living hell out of me. But I love James Taylor. I think he's amazing. I mean, Sammy Davis Jr. was probably the most uh, talented man in so many different ways. So I can listen to Sammy 24-7. Um, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm kind of an old school music guy. So if, if you were not um, a multifaceted entertainer, producer, creator of all sorts of enjoyment and happiness for millions of viewers, listeners, and watchers across the world, what would you be doing with your life? Whoa. Well, there's a, uh, a tough question. Um, I'm not sure. I always thought if I was going to be a chef, um, I would be a pastry chef because I always feel you should eat dessert first and then if there's room, you eat whatever's left. <laughs> so uh, having been to CIA several times and uh, spoken to Johnson & Wales, um, that might be one direction to go. People generally say teaching. I, I lecture a lot at colleges and it's fun but frustrating because I think the reason people who are successful are successful is because they have a passion for something. And if you go to a college and there's 2,000 kids in a uh, journalism class, um, 1,980 of them have no freaking idea what they want to do. And so I get frustrated with that and don't have the patience for it. So um, maybe it's my job as a teacher is to try and build some enthusiasm. But I don't think you can teach somebody passion. They either have it. You're either born with it or you're not. My son was born with passion. My daughter was born with passion. And and they followed their dreams. So that's cool. That is super cool. Well, hey, Mark. Wait, no, I have to cut oh. you off because I have one final really, really important question. Uh, On what would you do? Yes. There would be this segment where you would pull people, you'd go through the audience and you would find people and you would make them do their secret trick. Yes. What is your secret trick? <laughs> I, I don't think I have one. You have to have one. A secret trick. Wow. Uh, you know what? I, I, nobody's asked me that. Good job, first of all. Uh, <laughs> I always tell them when people ask me to do these things, I always say, okay, don't ask me the same old questions, which you guys have, and you've done great. But uh, my secret trick, you know, I don't have one. You know, Woody, the exec producer, always used to try and make me do stuff. He once made me do uh, uh, jumping jacks with peanut butter under my arms. I remember that. Uh, and one, the worst one he ever did was he took chameleons. Back in the day, uh, people would wear live chameleons uh, as earrings. This is not true. This is absolutely true in Florida. And so he put <laughs> oh live God. chameleons and those little son of bitches had, you know, sharp teeth. <laughs> and so on live TV, you know, when you're doing a kid show, you can yell, oh, 
you know? Yeah. And so I couldn't wait to get that thing off me. But well, uh, Why I, specifically chameleons? So that they would blend in? Or like... <laughs> I guess so. I don't know. But it was just the weirdest the thing. The 90s were the weirdest <laughs> era. <laughs> it was. When you think about it. I mean, anything went. Um, you know what? You stumped me for the first time. I have I have no secret trick. I mean, other than I do magic, but I, I have nothing. Do you have a secret trick? I don't. And this has actually been a huge source of anxiety for the last 25 years of my life, <laughs> is that I would watch the show and I would be terrified that somehow you would appear in my life and ask me to do my secret trick and I don't have one. You don't have one. Like I'm not double jointed in my shoulders. Like I can't like pull my foot like, you know, yeah, around my do back. Weird stuff. Like, do you have a secret crazy trick? Crazy stuff. Uh, I can juggle. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's totally a secret trick. See, I, that's something Never I comes up. Never comes up hey, here in the interview. Well, but you can do it. No, but you can do it. Mark and I will be over here in the corner. That's right, watching. Can't do anything but talking through a microphone. <laughs> that's it. But we've done so well so far. So <laughs> thank you. you so much for coming by the Eater Up Cell, Mark you Summers. For the cookies you, and the water. Yeah. I feel you like can I'm in prison. Check out Mark's all sorts of everything. He's got a one man show coming up at the in we'll be in New York in November. We open in New York. We we're locking out of the theater right now, but it's gonna be in November. We did it at the place called uh, Bloomington Playwrights Project in April, and uh, it went so well that uh, we had an offer for a tour in Off-Broadway, so we're doing Off-Broadway, go figure. Uh, so it's chapter three of my life, who knows? The Life and Slimes of Mark Summers. That's it. Awesome, thanks also, for coming. Also, we're what? at the Adirondack Theater Festival in August doing five performances uh, for Life and Slime. So we're almost sold out, but if you can get there, uh, come and watch. That's super cool. Go check it out, everybody. And Mark Summers is basically the coolest person I've ever met. Oh. This is like the highlight of my life. Yeah, thanks for hanging out, Mark. <laughs> you guys are great. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming by. Absolutely. Our producers are Patrick Bolger and Maureen Giannone. Our associate producer is Daniel Janine. Our studio team is Alec Ulrich and Miles Ewell. And our editor-in-chief is Amanda Clute. And we are your hosts. I'm Greg Morabito. And that wonderful person over there is Helen Rosner. 